Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And welcome to my first podcast in 2013. Although I'd uh, planned on getting this out to you a little sooner, uh, after my return from my 6,000-mile train ride across the country and back, well, I picked up another pesky head cold that kept me awake for several nights and then left me with a lack of energy during the day. And then uh, yesterday I started recording the podcast, and uh, (laughs) after about three or four minutes, it sounded like I had a clothespin on my nose. So uh, I put it aside, and we're going to try it again today. Uh, I I at least think things are uh, getting back to uh, what passes for normal in this uh, chaotic world of ours. But before I introduce today's program, I'd first like to give a shout-out to John Jay from the Chicago area, Per L, uh, and two other fellow saloners uh, to whom I should have uh, written by now in answer to their messages to me regarding some uh, difficult times that they are going through. Uh, it isn't that I haven't been thinking about you guys, but uh, I just can't seem to gather up enough energy to follow through on all of the uh, correspondence that I should be doing, I guess, and uh, so I hope you understand. Also, uh, I want to thank the four wonderful fellow saloners who made donations during the time that I've been offline and uh, have helped to uh, set aside or offset some of these expenses here in the salon. It's uh, really gratifying that you didn't forget about me while I was gone. And uh, as soon as I get the program notes out for today's podcast, I'll uh, be sending you a little personal note of thanks. And uh, finally, I want to thank one of our fellow saloners from the Washington, D.C. area who helped to put me at ease on a night when I felt like I just didn't quite fit in with the crowd in which I found myself. But when Julie, and uh, that's Julie with an E, (laughs) hi Julie, uh, came up and introduced herself as a fellow saloner, I knew that uh, even in that somewhat conservative-looking assembly, there was uh, at least one person there who was a kindred spirit. Also, uh, of course, I want to thank you for being patient and uh, waiting for this podcast to finally reappear and uh, for being with me here in the salon today. You know, uh, I wouldn't be doing this at all if it wasn't for you and our other fellow saloners. So, where to begin? Originally, I had a different talk planned for today's podcast, but upon my return home, I learned that my dear friend Myron Stoloroff had died a few days earlier. And so today I want to spend a little time with you remembering Myron and the incredible life that he led. What I've done is to compile a few sound bites from some of the 11 podcasts that I've done which featured Myron, either individually or in conversation with others. I hope that after hearing this that you'll go out to our Notes from the Psychedelic Salon blog and check on the Myron Stoloroff category and then re-listen to some of those recordings. As you know, uh, Myron has been highly acclaimed for his pioneering work with LSD, which took place before scientific research on that important chemical was banned by the U.S. government. However, uh, what some in our community don't know is that Myron also played a pivotal role in the design and production of audio and video tape recorders while he was uh, working at the pioneering company in that early field, Ampex. And if you aren't familiar with Ampex, uh, well, you probably should be. For it was Ampex that first gave us the multi-track recordings that essentially made today's music recordings what they are. 
and it was Myron's uh, breakthrough work in designing the servo mechanisms of these early recorders that led to their commercial success. He uh, eventually actually was honored uh, for this work by his alma mater, Stanford University, where uh, he ultimately received a master's degree in electrical engineering. Now, for a time, uh, Myron was what today, I guess, would be considered one of the rising stars in uh, what then passed for Silicon Valley, and he was on his way to riches, it appeared. However, after his first LSD experience, he cashed in his stock and left the corporate grind altogether in order to pursue the further exploration of this important substance. And his mentor, I should add, was the legendary Johnny Appleseed of LSD, Al Hubbard. And in my podcast number 235, you can uh, hear a rare conversation between Myron, Al Hubbard, and Humphrey Osmond, who, among many other things, is the person that coined the word psychedelic. In fact, I've included a little excerpt from that uh, conversation in this collection that I'm about to play. And if you listen to that entire podcast, you'll learn that their conversation was actually taking place on the day after the three of them had had uh, an LSD session together. And again, that was back in the 60s when it was still all legal. Actually, it was in 1961 that Myron founded the International Foundation for Advanced Study in Menlo Park, where they uh, led clinical investigations of LSD in regards to its effectiveness in enhancing personal creativity. And somewhere around, uh, I guess, 350 or more people went through that program, and the results were really impressive. Uh, And after we hear a few sound bites from Myron, I'll tell you a little bit more about that research and uh, what records of it still remain. Sadly, uh, in 1965, the government revoked uh, Myron's permit to conduct LSD research, and the Institute forevermore closed its doors. As a side note, uh, I think that the last person who was an integral part of that Menlo Park group is uh, still alive, and that's Jim Fadiman, who you've heard here in the salon a couple of times. And hopefully some dedicated historian will one day sit down with Jim and get the full story of the Institute for us in uh, much more detail than I'll ever be able to provide from only my few conversations with Myron and, uh, and a few others. Now between 1970 and 1986, Myron and a small band of dedicated psychonauts conducted additional personal studies using unscheduled compounds. However, uh, this work also ended with the passage of a law, uh, namely the Controlled Substances Analog Act of 1986. And again, I'll return to that part of the story after we listen to a a few words from Myron. Now, as far as my own self, how my own story intersected with that of Myron, well, it began with what was essentially a chance meeting. In April of 2000, uh, just two weeks after the death of Terence McKenna, My wife and I received an invitation to a private conference that was to be held at Hollyhock on Cortez Island in British Columbia. And it was to be an eclectic mixture of uh, psychedelic researchers, uh, psychiatrists and psychoanalysts, writers, musicians, and several leaders of the syncretic spiritual practice, Santo Daime. One day I'll uh, actually have to tell the story of that conference because it was really uh, amazing from many standpoints. But when my wife and I arrived at Hollyhock, we were assigned a room in a building that only had two other couples in it. On one side of us were Jane and Duncan Blewett, and on the other side of us were Jean and Myron Stoloroff. Uh, Over the course of that week uh, that we spent there, we became quite close with the four of them, uh, and our acquaintance with Jean and Myron eventually blossomed into a deep friendship. 
Now, if you're a student of the early history of the current psychedelic renaissance, you will recognize uh, not only Myron's name, but that of Duncan Blewett as well. For it was Duncan who was one of the first professional researchers on the North American continent to personally experience LSD. The sound bites that I'm going to play for you right now, I've selected more or less at random. Uh, it is by no means a best of podcast because some of Myron's more important musings were, uh, well, a bit too long to include here. But I think that the ones that I've selected will give you a good overview of Myron's thought and personality. Unfortunately, at the time that I made the first recordings of my talks with Myron, which comprised the three Lone Pine Stories podcasts, I had no idea what I was doing, and uh, so the recordings are not even up to average amateur status uh, in so as the quality of the sound. For example, in the first three selections that I'm going to play for you, from time to time you'll hear a thumping sound. Well, what caused that is that I put the microphone on a stand in front of Myron, and uh, in fact, I'll post a picture of uh, Myron sitting in front of that microphone in the program notes with this podcast, so you can get a little better idea of the scene. But what was happening that I didn't notice at the time was that Myron, uh, well, from time to time, he'd sort of nervously thump his fingers on the microphone stand. And since I couldn't hear it myself, uh, my lack of experience blinded me to the fact that uh, those thumps were being transmitted through the mic stand and into the microphone itself. However, uh, instead of kicking myself over this little mistake, I've instead to come to uh, kind of treasure those uh, sometimes irritating thumps because they remind me of, uh, well, what it was like to visit with Myron. You know, it's not that he had a nervous tick or twitch or anything like that, but it was this vibrant, smiling surge of electric energy that just seemed to constantly radiate out from him that, uh, well, to my mind, wouldn't let his hands be completely still during the hours that we made our recordings. So, I've included a few selections from that series just to pass along that image for you. I've also included a short bit from the next-to-last public appearance that Myron made, which was a speech that he gave in uh, Basel, Switzerland, on the occasion of Dr. Albert Hoffman's 100th birthday celebration. And the final bit that I've included is uh, from a public conversation between Myron and Gary Fisher at one of the uh, famous salons hosted by Kathleen, at her home in Venice Beach, California. And that conversation is also available uh, in full in my podcast number 232. And in fact, there's also a video recording of that talk, which I'll uh, try to remember to embed in the program notes for today's podcast, uh, which, as you know, you can get to via psychedelicsalon.us. And if you happen to have read or listened to my novel, The Genesis Generation, you're uh, probably going to recognize that scene in uh, Kathleen's Salon as the basis of the fictional one in the chapter titled Caitlin's Salon. Now for me, this final meeting between Myron and Gary Fisher, who by the way was equally important in those early days of psychedelic research, well, I think it's my best recording of either of them. As you know, uh, Gary died a little, uh, I guess a little over a year and a half ago now, and, in fact, I've been remiss in not also doing a tribute like this to Gary, which uh, is something I'll be sure to do yet this year. But in any event, uh, the conversation between Gary and Myron at Kathleen's Salon is by far my favorite recording of each of them, uh, simply because it gives a good example of the relaxed, friendly, and uh, humorous times that many of us have spent with one or the other or both of them. I guess I should also mention that in the second of the sound bites that I'll be playing for you, 
Myron is talking about the work that he and a small group of psychedelic explorers did in researching the chemicals that are uh, described in great detail in Anne and Sasha Shulgin's books, Pecal and Tikal. And in case you think that those titles refer to ancient Mayan temples, <laughs> well, they don't. They are acronyms that stand for phenethylamines that I have known and loved and tryptamines I have known and loved. And in the second parts of those two books, you'll find a long list of psychoactive chemicals, uh, recipes for making them, and recommended dosage, uh, along with brief experience reports about their effects. Now, it may not have occurred to you, but someone had to do all of that research to come up with the information. And while I'm not yet at liberty to disclose some of the details about that work, uh, the work that Myron told me about, I still hope to be able to do uh, just that one day. But if you feel as I do about the importance of that work that's detailed in those two books, then you may agree with me in thinking that uh, Myron's Little Red House in the High Desert, along with Sasha Shulgin's laboratory, should both one day be moved to the Smithsonian Institution uh, as the locations of most important research into the nature of human consciousness that uh, may have taken place in the last century. Well, <laughs> I guess that's a little melodramatic. <laughs> so uh, maybe I should only say that, uh, psychedelic history aside, that little red house was the scene of some of my own most memorable experiences in the past 20 years. And uh, if you want to get a feel for that house where much of this work took place, I've put up a short video of a visit and walk with Myron that I had sometime in 2006. And I'll embed that video in the program notes for today's podcast too. Well, as much as I'd like to go on and uh, tell more stories about all of these early psychedelic researchers, I guess I'd better stop for now and simply get out of the way and let Myron speak for himself. So here now is Myron Stolaroff sitting at his dining room table in a remote little red house on a hill in the high desert somewhere near the foot of the eastern Sierras. And by the way, uh, Myron was 86 years old at the time the first of these recordings was made. With your background, you know, you, you went to Stanford, you know, you, didn't you get your master's and bachelor's there? I got a master's degree there. Yeah, mm -hmm. at Stanford, my God, you know, and then you helped develop the video uh, tape system at Ampex. And yeah. Stuff. I've always wondered, you know, doing, you know, you were really on a fast track there, and... Oh, how I've did you, been lucky as can be. How did you feel about walking away from all that, though, to... Uh, really pursue the expansion of consciousness and uh... oh god after I'd had LSD I think any, there wasn't anything else that could come anywhere close to it that was, that was the most remarkable thing of my whole life and uh, even just the, the very first trial it was so profound and so opening and just just dimensions of consciousness opened and you think there's nothing else like this anywhere. There's anything else you can do to, to, to equal that. What I'd like to say is uh, uh, we were first introduced to these things while we were living in the Bay Area and then we decided to move out here and uh, we did. We had this uh, house uh, constructed and uh, we moved out here, I think it was uh, in the uh, uh, 78, hmm? 1978 uh, is when we finally moved out here. 
Uh, and by this time, we've had quite a bit of experience with a lot of different substances, and we thought they were valuable, and uh, we thought that maybe we could contribute by exploring with other people and seeing how others responded to it. So for some, I'd say maybe 15, 20 years, uh, uh, we were seeing people very regularly. <laughs> Sometimes we come and have people come every weekend. Uh, if they got too much and uh, getting too much for us, we'd skip a week or two. Uh, but we would, uh, were having people come on a regular basis, and we would use these different substances. I, the question I want to ask is, uh, you two have done so much work with uh, together and with other couples, but have you ever, like, taken MDMA and danced all night? Or have you ever done it, like, what's called recreational? <laughs> well, since you brought that up, uh, I'll say yes. Uh, that's one of the things that we like to do. Gene and I would often, after after an experience, and it would be different things. Uh, Asklin was very good. Uh, of course, LSD was our favorite. Uh, there were other things that we used, and a, a lot of times, toward the end of the day, we'd turn on the music and dance, and just had a had a ball with it. Uh, so, so you don't have an objection to the recreational uh, end of the the medicines? Is oh, not at all. Uh, it's kind of interesting how how people react differently. Um, I think two. I think two CB was one that was that we thought was pretty good, and then we had some very close friends. Had been close friends for twenty, thirty years, and uh, actually they had uh, they had gone through uh, the LSD treatment uh, in Menlo Park when it was legal, and we were uh, providing that function, and uh, they came here. <laughs> And uh, we used the 2CB, and uh, boy, they didn't like it at all. <laughs> and I was really surprised because uh, we thought it was pretty good. But the thing is, you see, uh, people don't know some of the deep things that you carry within our consciousness. Uh, these, these are repressed materials, and they're quite a load to us. And actually, it's of enormous benefit to be willing to go into that, <clears throat> move into it, uh, discover what it is, uh, realize what it is, and be able to release it and be free. And when that happens, that's an extremely freeing experience. Uh, it's just like taking a load off of yourself. And uh, so we like to encourage people to do that. But every once in a while, you know, you find people who are up pretty tight and it's almost too much. Uh, but uh, with those kind of people, what we would do is uh, we'd give them, go through some, and uh, a lot of times they were too resistant and didn't want to go too far. They'd come back another time and have them break through a little more, and hopefully after three or four times they would open up pretty much and, and get into a lot better space than they were before. Yeah, I find that kind of fascinating because today, you know, kids just go out and teenagers and middle school even and take acid for the first time with some friends out you know sneaking around uh, well, you really had a program where you uh, went made you, you took people through uh, uh, carbogen and then uh, you talked to them you interviewed them before their first session this was oh absolutely oh we we spent uh, 
generally we spent several weeks with them. They, they come in just once a week. And we would see them maybe three or four times uh, to get better acquainted. Uh, uh, we'd give them... Uh, Hubbard, Hubbard was the one that uh, brought this to our attention. Um, Carbogen. And... Uh, uh, they would come, uh, and we would discuss things with them, find out uh, what their problems were, what they were looking for, and so on. And then we'd give them uh, uh, the carbogen. Uh, do you understand what car- carbogen is? 70% oxygen, 30% CO2, right? Right. Okay. Yeah. And uh, they would breathe that, and uh, you get a lot of action out of that. <laughs> but Hubbard loved... Uh, he loved calling people around and uh, while he gave me carbogen because usually I exploded all over the place <laughs> and I would just fuck him or, or, or Jesus Christ or something I'd always come up with something <laughs> they all got a big kick out of it <laughs> so you were the, dem- dem- demonstrator. the demonstrator yeah, yeah. Demonstrator. and if, if they saw your demonstration and still felt that they wanted to try it then they were they passed the test. <laughs> right on. <laughs> my my guess is that you would recommend that a meditation practice should be uh, or is beneficial. Oh, absolutely. And uh, you know, if you're going to work with these materials, uh, meditation is a marvelous supporter because uh, as you use the materials, you open your consciousness more. And that opens your meditation more, so then your meditation becomes more effective and more fulfilling. So it's a, a growing process. I, I asked you last night, uh, and I love the answer. Uh, you know, what would your life have been like without LSD? <laughs> <laughs> oh God, it it'd been it would have been miserable <laughs> by comparison. Absolutely miserable. Oh. It, no, taking taking LSD was just a remarkable change of life. Yeah. And it's just criminal that that our nation uh, holds holds it holds it down so thoroughly. They won't have anything to do with it. Uh, they don't even want to look at it. That's changing a little bit now. It's changing a little bit. Do you want want to say anything about your? Uh uh, say relationship with Timothy Leary and your involvement with Timothy Leary or do you want to leave that one alone I don't care well I don't mind saying uh, <clears throat> Hubbard went and, uh, and met uh, Leary and he liked him a whole lot and uh, he came back he wanted me to put Leary on our uh, board of directors and I wasn't about to do it without meeting him and after a few months, after Hubbard had been over there, he came to the West Coast, and he came to our place, and uh, I got introduced to him, and uh, I found that he's a very winsome per- person. He's a very smooth talker, and uh, uh, I made a... He, <clears throat> I made a date with him. He was uh, seeing some people in San Francisco. And uh, so <clears throat> he told me to come up and we'd spend more time together. And he gave me the address of, of a lady uh, to go to where he was going to see later in the day. <laughs> and uh, I got there 
quite a while, quite a bit before he got there. So I spent some time talking with her. She was a lovely person. She was a nurse, and uh, and he had met her, and uh, and he's a smooth character. And I think he he's really smooth with women. So the three of us went out for dinner, and. Uh, uh, we talked till I think close to one o'clock in the morning, and the, the just between us, the girl she must have been very very bored. <laughs> but on the other hand, you know, uh, see I was sitting there with her, and then when he came, knocked on the door, he walked in, he had his had a suitcase, and he set it down. It was very clear that he was going to spend the night there. <laughs> So, but we enjoyed our dinner and we enjoyed our talking, and she probably was pretty bored by all the stuff we were doing. I don't know. Anyhow, I went home at one o'clock, and he went back with her. And he made it to the board, I guess. <laughs> and he made it to the board. Yeah, uh, I, I liked him. And then a whole bunch of stuff happened, and um, <clears throat> they said, "Look." They don't care the way that uh, they're behaving, and uh, if they're going to be on your board, we're not. We're going to resign. So I actually went out there and... Uh, uh, out to uh, uh, where, uh, the Harvard, or Cambridge? Yeah. And uh, oh, Leary was still at Harvard then. You know, he was still at Harvard, but the dissension had already gotten uh, risen. And we sat at Big Tail. I don't about... 24 people there at dinner uh, and they were they were part of his group I had heard that you know that they were going to release him and uh, somehow the discussion came up and I brought it up that uh, when's this going to happen and and all the other people said what, what do you mean this is all a bit bullshit that isn't true and I said uh, Tim uh, is this true or not that you're going to be released? He hadn't told his own people. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I had him caught, and he said, yeah, this, this is going to happen. So that's when they found out? That's, when, that's how they found out. If okay. I hadn't been there, God only knows how much longer it would have taken. <laughs> the next morning, I up early in the morning, I had to catch a plane. And I told him that we had to take him off of Yeah. And, uh, and I couldn't help liking the guy. Uh, but uh, How did he take it when you said you're taking him off the board? Oh, he, he understood. Yeah. He understood. After all, <laughs> the, the, if they can kick him out, I can kick him out, I guess. <laughs> yeah, but he's pretty understanding about those things. You know, at, at breakfast this morning, Gene was... Uh, kind of I forgot how she said it but she said oh yeah everywhere you go you're riding on a shuttle from the airport to a hotel or something you strike up a conversation about psychedelics uh, how, how do you how, how do you approach strangers I mean if you're just sitting on a bus with somebody do you just oh, strike I up a conversation I, I really had a lot of fun with that uh, <coughs> I'd, uh, <coughs> I had to go to catch an airplane and uh, we're usually at my daughter's house and it's uh, quite a distance to uh to the airport and so we'd get uh, the uh, what do you call it uh, or the shuttle uh, the, the lemon, shuttle yeah. yeah we'd have the shuttle come and pick us up and it, it took oh 45 minutes mm-hmm. uh, usually to get over there so we'd get in and you know sooner or later they'd pick up other people there'd be a few people in mm-hmm. the car 
and uh, if they were close and they, if they looked friendly, uh, I might uh, uh, bring up the issue and ask questions and so on. And, uh, and it, it kind of struck me that uh, how frequently it was that somebody that were sitting there, usually it's not a, a big, uh, I think it, there's only maybe half a dozen people yeah. that would get in the same mm-hmm. unit. Uh, but uh, almost always uh, I'd get the interest of at least one person and <laughs> maybe some more than that and then we go from there you know and just see how far we're willing to, to discuss it uh, I don't think I was ever totally shut off it, it might have been that sometimes you know nobody was interested and so you just had to forget it but uh, it was kind of interesting I think I I think I got somebody's interest almost every time. I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah. And I just did it just to see if I could, I could raise that interest. <laughs> yeah. Well, it beats uh, talking about politics and religion, you know. that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and, and, of course, you know, I always had to be careful, you know, that I'm not doing anything now. Right. Uh, this yeah. is stuff that uh, used to do, unfortunately, uh, our stupid government <laughs> shut things down. So uh, not much is going on, but uh, we were fortunate that there was a time when we could do these things. And at least we can, uh, at least for the time being, still talk about these things. Yeah. So uh, hopefully that'll go on. But, mm-hmm. uh, so yeah, you never never had any ugly incident with anybody uh, preaching to you about the uh, evils of these substances. Or not anything. a one, not mm-hmm. a one. You know, getting them to understand that although he now feels great and has had this marvelous awakening. And some of the things he's been talking about are really true. Yes. Uh, his congregation may not be so convinced, and they may need to be uh, shown this uh, a lot more slowly and mm-hmm. delicately. So, of course, uh, all I'm saying is is really uh, to kind of assess where we are at this. Mm-hmm. I think we've learned a great deal about this. I think, in fact, our focus here, one of the focuses mm-hmm. that's made us successful is the fact that we've had this basic attitude that the experience per se doesn't mean anything. Mm-hmm. It's what what are you going to do with mm-hmm. it? And getting more and more understanding of what the person is doing and his relationships uh, and how he's utilizing the information that he's obtained. Mm-hmm. So uh, we're gradually learning. I think in the last two or three years we've learned a great deal about this. Mm-hmm. Uh, on the other hand, as you saw yesterday, we still have a great deal to learn. But uh, I would say this. My feeling is, Humphrey, that uh, with the more responsible people, the more mature people, you really need to do less in helping them integrate the experience than with some of the disturbed ones or with those who are in difficult environmental situations. Mm -hmm. Uh, The ones who are in difficult environmental situations really need help because, for instance, if the the family is opposed or there's some family problem and the environment that they have to deal with is Mm -hmm. tough, they need support, Mm -hmm. they need to uh, be helped to understand. But the more mature ones seem to become sort of self-actualizing and self-generating mm-hmm. and pretty much take care of themselves. And, and those who've had good experiences, we've seen from our crowd, I think very little, very, very few people get off the beam the way I would consider Larry and Alpert are mm-hmm. off the beam, for example. Uh, how, what's your feeling about this, Bill? I think that-
Early in the week, I was talking to Albert Hoffman. I told him I would be here and uh, asked if he had some things that he would like me to say for him. And uh, he said several things. The first is that he's looking to the next generation with high hopes. Now, since he's 97 years old, that means that most of you here are the next generation. So, <laughs> so keep that in mind. <clears throat> Dr. Hoffman is absolutely convinced that LSD has a very important future. Ab- too important a medium by far to be neglected. It's true that sometimes it's difficult and sometimes even dangerous if not properly used. But used properly, he's absolutely sure that new dimensions of consciousness and new levels of experience will be reached. Consciousness is the true nature of man, and LSD is a powerful revealer of extended consciousness. He's convinced that it would be insane to not use such a valuable tool. I'm sure a lot of you here agree. I'm going to make a brief summary of some of uh, the characteristics of LSD. Uh, you probably all know this. You've heard it before. But I thought I would just review so that we'd all sort of be working on the same plane here. First of all, I'd like to report, and, and I can't deny this because it's in writing, <laughs> But I'm on record as claiming that LSD is the most powerful learning tool that we have. But there are a lot of misunderstandings about it, particularly our government and the public at large. The DEA like to say that uh, LSD is dangerous and toxic. And uh, when I talk about it, I I do admit that there's one really, uh, really powerful defect or one one thing that makes it very uncomfortable, and that is, in order to have a valuable experience, you have to be honest. (laughs) I thought that might get more response. (laughs) The general mistake is that a lot of people look at LSD in the same way you look at at, uh, allopathic medicines, that you take LSD and it does something to you. And actually, I think it works in a total different way. Having been working with this for a number of years and observing a lot of experiences, I'm convinced that what LSD does is simply open the door to your unconscious. Uh, Unfortunately, one of the areas you encounter there is the shadow, as, as defined by Carl Jung. The shadow material contains all the stuff that we really don't want to know, a lot of it's painful and hurtful, and uh, so we have the ability with our powerful mind to repress this and keep it totally out of consciousness. So a lot of people, especially if they're not properly prepared and uh, they don't realize these potentials, can get into those places and they can be very uncomfortable. Another thing that I found personally is that uh, the deeper that I've gone into my own psyche to clear things up, uh, I find that I run to run into more heavily defended areas. So the deeper you go, the more powerful is the repression. And also that means it's more painful to go through these areas. 
So I think a lot of people really stop exploring their own inner psyche uh, because they don't want to go into that deep shadow material. <clears throat> On the other hand, if you realize that this is what you're doing <clears throat> and you choose to do it, the release, the release of shadow material is extremely rewarding. First of all, it takes a lot of energy to hold repressed material down. So as you, as you release it, that energy becomes available again. <clears throat> There's an opening in awareness. You see with greater clarity. Your intuition improves. Creativity improves. There's increased well-being and joy. All of this from the release of this stuff that we're holding down that serves us no purpose. If we continue in our exploration, we find that doors are open to profound levels of realization. We discover that we're intimately connected to everything in the universe. We are more, we, and we find that we're immersed in this life force, which is, which is really inconceivable love. We can look at our creation and see the enormous beauty, the wonder, the aliveness everywhere. As one who's abused LSD by trying to overcome difficulties with repeated experiences, I have found that a good meditation practice is an excellent way to keep the gains from experiences alive. Deepening meditation practice deepens your LSD experience, and having more profound LSD experiences yields instant gains in deepening meditation practice. Now, unfortunately, there's a very tragic dilemma in our country. Our Constitution guarantees us freedom of religion. When we use LSD appropriately, it can provide a direct, crystal clear path to the height of spiritual ecstasy. It can provide the direct experience of the Godhead. And our government makes this valuable tool illegal. <clears throat> Every coin that's minted, Every bill of our currency that's printed holds the letters, In God We Trust. Yet we are denied the most direct path to experience and realize the Godhead. This seems to be, to me, an enormous tragedy. What might we do about this? I, th I think if we can plan something and have a goal in the future that we can work toward, that uh, perhaps we can find... Uh, create a situation where we can resolve this problem and have the freedom of religion that we're entitled to. Uh, I suggest that we establish centers for spiritual realization, combining the appropriate use of LSD with the meditation practice. The staff should include at least one leader who's well experienced in the spiritual employment of LSD and there should also be an experienced meditation teacher, although it could be the same person if he has the qualifications. You need a meeting place, and this can be as simple as someone's house. Each candidate who wants to join this group must first have a solo, well-prepared LSD experience with the leader, as provided by Jacob in the book The Secret Chief. If the experience is satisfactory, he can join the group, if not, he can have repeated experiences until he is properly prepared. 
Members of the group will be expected to develop a good meditation practice. And you should be willing to devote at least 30 minutes a day, and better, it's an hour a day. And as your practice deepens, you'll find not only, you'll find this easier and easier to do and more rewarding. The, the group will meet weekly for instruction and meditating together. And once every one or two months, the group can meet for a shared LSD experience. The continual sharing of meditation and sacramental experiences reinforces the group energy while the learning of each individual contributes to the learning of everyone else in the group. Uh, What I've described here can open the doors to true spiritual development in a model that could well be incorporated by any sincere religious group anywhere in the world. What is it like to enter the dimensions of higher consciousness? Dr. Hoffman has presented a great deal of information from his own personal experiences in books he has written. In my own experience, I've been unusually blessed to have the privilege of entering dimensions never previously imagined. While I've not always been able to retain the full impact of these discoveries, if I did, I would be enlightened in the Buddhist sense, the impact of these openings has exposed such grandeur and vastness that only that the only acceptable response is incredible gratitude. Being human and still carrying burdens beyond my ability to resolve them, there still remains important work to be done. But just having experienced glimpses is enough to muster determination to press forward For it is now clear that our real self, the true I that resides in the heart of each of us, is present and available and is worth far more than anything one could possibly imagine. Entering this dimension is pure, indescribable bliss. We are one with the universe, including all other beings and creatures. And it is crystal clear that love is the only answer. It is really impossible to fully describe the remarkable essence of who we are. What I am presenting here are simply words. And we all know how easy it is to present words in all kinds of ways. But in each of us, the remarkable core that is one with all And hopefully, as these words are stated, something deep within yourself will recognize a new reality, a reality that is the most worthwhile thing we can possibly realize. Hopefully, just a taste of this can reveal what is possible and is ultimately real, the only reality that really matters. Since 1965, I've learned that psychedelic substances were the most powerful learning tools available to mankind. Complex, powerful, they're easily misused and abused. Yet for the sincere seeker, armed with honesty, courage, and an unquenchable thirst for self-discovery, I know of no other means that can so readily provide self-understanding 
and the ultimate nature of reality, nor they can so readily reveal the source of most of the difficulties of the human race and the most appropriate path to their resolution. Okay, you guys can take it from there. Um, Myra is going to talk for a while about um, himself, hopefully, and uh, Al Hubbard. And um, after he's finished, then we're going to take questions from the audience. But while he's talking, uh, we don't want to interrupt his train of thought because he'll never get back to it. <laughs> <laughs> My thoughts disappear this fast. <laughs> I know, because i got the same syndrome. Um, a little, uh, I was a little disconcerted to get a call from George Bush earlier today, and Myron's been appointed sainthood. Bush is Well, he's the Pope. And so I don't know who this guy is here. I thought I knew him. Um, so, um, Myron, let's start. Okay. <clears throat> One of the questions <clears throat> that uh, Gary asked me, and which I hope you all will be interested in, is how did I get mixed up with Hubbard in the first place? And it's really a fascinating story to me, anyway. <laughs> uh, but uh, I'd gotten acquainted with uh, Gerald Hurd in Southern California, who's one of the world's really great mystics and a marvelous author, if you've read his books. And uh, I was very taken with him. And uh, uh, well, I was with Ampex Corporation and went to Southern California frequently. And every time that I went down there in business, I tried to see uh, Gerald. So one time I was visiting him. And he started telling me about LSD and taking it and what a remarkable thing it was and all the openings that it provided. And I thought, my God, what, what's a mystic doing taking drugs anyway? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so I didn't do much more about it. But then Alex Ponyatoff was the head of Ampex Corporation, and he'd gone to Canada. And somehow or other, he'd run into Hubbard. And he came back and told me all kinds of stories that uh, Hubbard had told him about the work he was doing. So I thought, well, gee whiz, maybe I'll get in touch with him. So I wrote Al a letter, and much to my amazement, two or three months later, he's, there he is on the steps of, of, uh, of Ampex. So we got acquainted, and I was sucked in immediately. He, <laughs> he's a very gregarious person, full of fun and laughter. And the thing that, that got me, um, you know, I was all shut up inside myself and uh, worried about this and that and the other thing, and I could never really feel anybody. But in his presence, I could feel his warmth. And uh, especially as I got to know him and spent more time with him, I just thought it was great just to be in his presence. And he's full of stories and all kinds of interesting things. So uh, it only took that one meeting for me to make up my mind that I wanted to go to Canada, where he lived, and uh, have LSD. And my first LSD experience was just absolutely remarkable. So. Uh, I think I was ventured to say right off the bat that that's the greatest discovery man has ever made. Of course, I don't know much else what the man <laughs> discovered, but as far as I'm concerned, I'm willing to stand by that. So that's how I got into it. And uh, Hubbard came down, introduced him to some folks. Some of them he got along with, some that he didn't. 
but in the end, uh, I just saw that I had to spend the rest of my life as much as possible in doing something about LSD. So I used to visit him quite a bit. <clears throat> he got together with Ross McLean in Canada. Ross McLean was a psychiatrist who had a, a mental hospital, and they administered LSD there, and I visited him there. And uh, after a while, I got to the point where I felt we had to do something, and so we started the clinic in Menlo Park, where for three and a half years, uh, we gave people LSD, uh, some mescaline, a little bit of psilocybin at, at times, until the FDA finally put a stop to everything in uh, 1965. So that's, that's how I got into And uh, Myron, uh, tell us how uh, Al Hubbard, this, how did he get a hold of LSD, or how was he introduced to it? I'm not, I'm not sure exactly who the people were that he got involved with. Uh, he did run into someone in the Vancouver area uh, who introduced him to LSD, and it only took one shot with him. He had an amazing opening, a tremendously spiritual experience, and he felt actually he'd been given a mission to uh, really spread this around. Fortunately, at the time, he was very well off financially. He had a very close friend who was wealthy. Who uh, He gave LSD to his friend, and his friend had the same kind of opening and was willing to support him in anything that he wanted to do. So he began to devote a lot of time meeting people, getting acquainted, and he was very good at sizing people up and assessing whether they'd make... Uh, good candidates, and he was very good at supporting people through the experience. So he began to spread the, world, uh, the word around, and uh, he covered an awful lot of ground. My connection was secondhand to him because my mentor was a guy by the name of Nick Shawalis, who was my brother-in-law. And he was a research uh, psychiatrist at the uh, University of Saskatchewan. And um, at the time, uh, they were studying LSD, and it was called at that time a psychotoma medic, uh, mimicking psychosis. So they were uh, giving people LSD, thinking they would discover what were the structures and the dynamics of psychosis. And Al went over and said, it's easy to make people crazy. What's hard is to make them sane. And LSD will make them sane and won't make them crazy. But if you give it the wrong, if you don't give it in the proper environment, it will make them crazy. And so that's uh, how, and I don't know how he got uh, to the Saskatchewan. It was called the Saskatchewan Group on Schizophrenia. That was the name of their project. And that was Hoffer and Osman. And then uh, my brother-in-law, Nick Shawallison, and his partner, uh, Duncan Blewett. And I had my first experience there with them in 1959, before any of you were born. <laughs> and I got born that day that I had my, my first session. Um, and Myron, why don't you tell us a bit about uh, the work that was done at Menlo Park? Well, I'll be glad to do that, but I'd like to in interject a little bit of what you just said about Duncan and Blewett, because... Uh, <clears throat> I'm not sure how the connection was made, but uh, 
Al went to Central Canada and met with uh, uh, with Hoffer and Osman, and he'd heard about their approach, which uh, really wasn't recognizing what LSD would do at all. But somehow he met uh, Blewett, and and he's very sensitive, and Blewett's a very open, warm person. He recognized right away that that Blewett would be a good candidate. So he gave Blewett LSD, and uh, he was off with Osmond and Hoffer, and uh, he went in and looked looked at Blewett, and Blewett was just having the time of his life. (laughs) So he went out to see uh, Hoffer and Osmond and says, said, you know, uh, this this guy Blewett is is having a psychosis. You better come in and see if you can get him out of it. (laughs) So they walked in. And immediately Blewett started laughing and laughing. And, and Al says, see, see, can you get him out of it? And he would just laugh all the time. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, anyhow, uh, Hubbard worked with uh, McLean at his hospital there for several years. And I got to visit that. And uh, uh, then Hubbard, well, he's not an easy guy to get along with. So. <laughs> He very much likes things his own way, and so I'm not sure what the conflict got between he and uh, uh, he and McLean, but he decided to set up his own uh, treatment place in downtown Vancouver, and that went on for a while. And I thought, gee whiz, we ought to do the same in Menlo, uh, in California. So uh, I put the necessary things together. Fortunately, I accumulated a little cash. And uh, we set up a place where uh, uh, really was set up pretty much the way Al uh, designed it. Uh, very nice furniture, comfortable setting, uh, beautiful pictures on the wall, uh, a lot of artifacts for people to look at to stimulate them in various ways. And then, of course, one of his uh, main tricks was to have people bring. Uh, pictures of their family, uh, their their parents, their siblings, uh, their marriage partners, and so on. Uh, because looking at that under the influence uh, brings is tremendously revealing. And he had another, uh, several really good pictures too. That uh, actually one one just really opened me wide open. <laughs> well, I I don't know how much. Is that St. Veronica's Veil? Yeah. 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 Oh, hell. I use it thousands of times. Worn out. It's a, well, Al was a Catholic. And um, so it was um, the setup that I uh, created for my work was exactly what they had in Menlo Park because it's what they had in Saskatchewan. So we were all uh, descendant, you know, benefactors of, of Al's um, uh, insights. And um, it's uh, when, my understanding is when Christ was carrying the cross, he fell and Veronica wiped his brow with her handkerchief. And then it was the, uh, and then the next day on the handkerchief was the image of uh, uh, Christ and this this awesome painting called St. Veronica's Veil and um, um, most powerful thing we we used it every session and 
you know, when they used it with me, I was not happy with Christians, I'm telling you. I mean, I had a family of Christians, and they were all kooky. And um, so I wasn't about to look at it, you know. But uh, Nick, you know, every hour or so, he'd pass it to me again. Well, I'm not ready for that. <laughs> and uh, so finally, uh, thank God, I looked at it. And uh, it was an overpowering experience to, uh, uh, to experience what uh, uh, Christ's love is. And um, I was astounded. I was absolutely astounded. Um, so that was um, work for me, and I thought if it works for me, hell can work for anybody. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're certainly right in, in my case. I'll just elaborate briefly. I've covered this in, in, the, in the book, but um, I looked at this figure, and one of the things about it <clears throat> is one of these pictures where you look and the eyes are open, and then you keep looking and the eyes closed. Did that happen with you? <clears throat> so I saw the eyes closed and I oh my God, something's wrong with me. How, why is he closing his eyes? Because the picture, when you're under LSD, is so alive, it's almost like a living person in front of you. It is. And so I looked again and then all of a sudden there was a swish and I was looking at a female face. Oh my God, what's happening here? And then all of a sudden, swish, another face. And then, in the next few minutes, a thousand faces of all variety of mankind went by. And I said, this is every man. I'm Jewish, my Jew. <laughs> 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 uh, one of the things I, uh, I, I suppose you all know, but uh, I'm a, you may not, uh, but in... <laughs> In that era, nobody had a clue what LSD was. But a funny story, when I was working with uh, my group of kids that I worked with, uh, I was working at a hospital in Costa Mesa with schizophrenic and autistic children. And I thought, well, hell, if it worked with me, it can work with anybody. So I told the psychiatrist in charge, I said, I want to give these kids LSD and see, you know, what will happen. And so what's LSD? Well, you know, this is the name of it. Well, is there any literature? No. And, he's, and so he sort of trusted me. And so uh, we just got LSD from Sandow and started using it. And But nobody knew what it was. So, you know, there weren't any committees or evaluating what we were going to do. We didn't know what we were going to do. I didn't even have a clue what I was going to do. One of the funny things, I was telling somebody one time that I was doing this work, uh, uh, LSD work with these children, and the guy looked at me and said, you're converting children to Mormonism? <laughs> I said, no, no, LSD, not LDS. He needs it. So the environment was absolutely wonderful. Laura uh, Huxley, uh, Myron and I both have known Laura forever, and she made the comment one time, uh, we didn't have any bad trips because we didn't know you, you could have bad trips. <laughs> so uh, all the input that we ever had from anybody was how, how uh, wonderful the experience was. So we didn't have, have any set that it was other than positive. 
And um, what a blessing that was, because it didn't hadn't gotten anywhere. It was totally unknown. And there were a few groups around the world that were using it. A friend of mine in Holland was using it. And another friend of mine in London was using it. So we would all find each other somehow, because there wasn't any internet in those days. <laughs> and, uh, but, uh, you know, word gets around. And um, uh, one of my best friends came to be Joyce Martin, who was a, an analyst in London, and out of the Tavistock Clinic. And she did incredible work. And uh, Aronson Hine in Holland, incredible work. He had his own hospital, and that's all he did was LSD work. And just awesome kinds of results. And then came, along came, well, I was going to say Leary the devil, but I won't. Along <laughs> 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 came shit, and then hit the fan, and then we were all closed down. So then we did it all, well, some of us did it without government approval, I guess you would say. <laughs> Yeah, uh, do, you want, do you want to um, make any other comments, or should we ask people for questions? Oh, let me just uh, mention one more thing is, uh, with regard to Hubbard, that uh, I think his <coughs> going to uh, to Mid-Canada, uh, to Hoffer and Osmond, and <laughs> the demonstration with Blewett, uh, really opened their eyes, and I think it really was the beginning that people began to discover what LSD could do. And uh, they went and started uh, doing a variety of programs, and, and Twellis and uh, Blewett worked together for several years with alcoholics, and then the other hospitals in Canada were trained and did it. So I, I really think you have to say that Hubbard was an enormous factor and LSD being properly recognized for its true merits and uh, work proceeding. Uh, actually, <coughs> in America, uh, they're, <laughs> they're harder to convince, and uh, I don't think they caught on nearly as well as the Canadians did. There are a few that did some pretty good work in America, but, but by and large, I think you have to give Hubbard a lot of credit for getting the thing moving. You're listening to the Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. Before I make any other comments, there is one thing that I'd like to be sure to say about the references that you just now heard Myron and Gary make regarding Dr. Timothy Leary. To be brief, uh, there was a lot of personal history between the three of them back in the 60s, and it didn't always have comfortable outcomes. And uh, you can hear some of these stories in the Gary Fisher recordings that I did a while back. Uh, also in Myron's uh, recordings, Lone Pine series, there's some interesting ones. And, of course, there's the one I just played. But here's something that I find quite interesting about these Timothy Leary comments. Now, some people who were involved with Dr. Leary in the 60s came away with a real negative image of the good doctor. However, I also know a lot of people who got to know the man that Timothy Leary had become by the final decades of his life. And without exception, they just can't speak highly enough of him. In fact, even in the part uh, we just heard where Myron told the story about meeting Leary and his staff at Harvard, he did end the story by uh, saying some kind things about him. So, what I've taken away from this, and from my own experience, is that Maybe we shouldn't judge a person until we've seen how they end their years here on Earth. 
I know that for myself, there are some things that I did and ways that I acted in my 30s, 40s, and 50s that, well, they caused me to wince at the memories. You know, trust me, there were uh, were times when you would not have liked me, most of uh, which I think took place during the alcohol phase of my life, you know, the years before I discovered the psychedelic world. But in my case, uh, at Burning Man in 2002, I changed my name from Larry to Lorenzo. And for me, it's been a wonderful thing to do, because uh, if ever someone brings up some of the stupid things that I'd like to forget, my response is simply, Oh, you're talking about Larry. Oh, I agree. He was a real lout. But that was Larry. I'm Lorenzo. (laughs) Well, I guess I'm really off track now. Where was I? Uh, Oh, getting back to the sound collage that we just listened to. Granted, uh, we have to give Al Hubbard a lot of credit for, uh, as Myron just said, getting the thing moving. But no less credit is due Myron Stoleroff and Gary Fisher for their pioneering work that they also did, much of which uh, will most likely never be repeated. And I hope that uh, with that last soundbite that you got a little idea of what Kathleen's salons were like in Venice Beach back then. One further note of possible interest is uh, that Myron gave me the print of Veronica's Veil that they used at his Menlo Park Institute for Advanced Studies. And uh, you can see a scan of it in the program notes for my podcast number 200, which is titled A Few Words from Our Elders, in which uh, Myron also appears. Now, in listening to those sound bites with you just now, uh, when Myron said how miserable his life might have been had he never found LSD, Well, I was really struck with another image of Myron, and that was how he suffered during the first few hours of an acid trip. On the few occasions when we had an experience together, I was always amazed at how difficult a time he had in the beginning of a trip. Uh, Myron and I and his wife Jean talked about that at length on several occasions, and because it really baffled me, since uh, I have only rarely had a negative experience on LSD. Well, what was taking place, I learned, was that even though Myron wasn't uh, what is called a practicing Jew, he nonetheless carried what must have been a, a terrible weight of the psychic suffering of, well, maybe of the entire Jewish people. And at the beginning of almost every psychedelic experience, uh, even the non-acid ones, he went through some sort of a hellish experience of the combined suffering of his ancestors. To be honest, uh, had I even had one experience as difficult as almost all of his were, well, I would never have taken LSD or anything else for a second time. Uh, his, His courage in these matters was, quite frankly, immense. In fact, I've never met a more courageous psychonaut than Myron. He will uh, always be a true hero of mine. Now, unfortunately, uh, not much has been written about Myron, but there is one book that finally did him justice, and that is John Markoff's brilliant book, What the Dormouse Said, How the 60s Counterculture Shaped the Personal Computer Industry. And this is a book not to be missed if you have uh, any interest at all in learning how we arrived at this world of mobile computing on a massive scale that we have now. And for those who don't remember what computers were like in the 50s and 60s, well, they were huge boxes that were safely encased behind glass walls and uh, tended to by super geeks who looked down rather disdainfully through their glass cages on us commoners who, well, we only wanted to get our hands on those great machines ourselves. And until the 60s, there was literally no talk uh, anywhere about there ever being such a thing as a personal computer. 
But as Markoff documents, uh, it was within a few mile radius of uh, Kepler's bookstore in Menlo Park at that very moment in time in the late 50s and early 60s that the personal computer was born. And Markoff gives credit to uh, mainly four people for laying the foundation upon which, uh, well, we are all now surfing waves of information. And one of the four was Myron Stoloroff, whose LSD program in Menlo Park at the time was the site of the personal transformations of uh, many of the key players at the Xerox Park and uh, the Stanford Research Institute, as well as many of the members of the Homebrew Computer Club uh, at which the first Apple boards were sold. And I could go on for another hour or so about that book, but suffice it to say that Markov gives Myron a lot of credit for the birth of the personal computer. Uh, interesting to me at least, uh, Markov never interviewed Myron for the book. In fact, uh, after it was published, uh, Myron even wrote to Markov asking to speak with him, but uh, a reply was never received, uh, much to Myron's dismay, I should add. Which uh, brings me to the story of what remains of the records of the Menlo Park research, as well as the work that Myron did with uh, Sasha Shulgin. It was during one of our late-night conversations, uh, Myron told me that when the Controlled Substances uh, Analog Act came out in 1986 and made illegal any and all research into mind-expanding substances, well, he became despondent and, uh, quite frankly, lost all hope that these important chemicals would ever again be investigated. So, when his former administrative assistant called and said that she no longer had room to store the personal records of the uh, 350 or so participants in their study, Myron told her to go ahead and destroy them all, and uh, so much of that research has now been forever lost. So I asked him uh, about the work that he did with Sasha. Where were those records? Well, when the second crackdown came in 1986, Myron took all of those records and stored them in a neighbor's barn. And uh, several years later, uh, after Myron had already begun slipping into early dementia, I was uh, visiting with him and Jean, and I asked Jean about those records. And she immediately brightened up and uh, said she'd forgotten all about them. And so that afternoon, she went and picked them up. Well, for the next two days and nights, uh, Jean and I poured through a treasure trove of interesting papers. You see, uh, for many of the experience accounts uh, that are detailed in PCAL and TCAL, Myron wrote uh, very detailed six to ten page reports for each and every participant in those experiments. It was an amazing amount of detailed information. But what was also in those boxes was some incredible personal correspondence between Myron, the Shulgans, Albert Hoffman, and others. In fact, uh, although I had Gene's permission to read this material, I, well, I kind of felt like a voyeur at times. But what great fun it was to read a whole series of letters from Anne and Sasha Shulgan over the period of one summer, <laughs> during which Sasha's main theme was his ongoing war against the gophers who were destroying his garden. Uh, you know, somehow reading about the more mundane aspects of uh, their family relations made them all seem much more human and real to me. But it was sometime on the third day uh, of looking through those records that I mentioned to Jean what a shame it was that the Menlo Park files had been destroyed. And it was then that she told me that, well, only the personal records had been destroyed, uh, the ones from the participants. But they still had a whole mountain of other records from the Institute, and uh, they were stored in a dilapidated old shed out back. And there, I found all of the administrative records and more from the Institute. 
And in a flash, I was pulling open file drawers and poking into boxes uh, just at random. And if I could spend another few hours today, I'd tell you about some of the amazing records that were slowly disintegrating in that old shed. However, uh, eventually you're going to be able to see them for yourself online. Uh, I'll get back to that in just a minute. So when I returned home, uh, first thing I did is called John Hanna and told him what I'd stumbled upon. So John then got together with Greg and Tanya Manning and along with Ann and Sasha Shulgin went down to visit the Stolaroffs and to uh, check out those lost records. And not long after they arrived, John called me and confirmed that the records of Myron and Jean's work with the Shulgins was a truly invaluable find and uh, thanked me for turning him on to it. So I asked him what he thought about the files in the old shed and he said, what files, what shed? Because <laughs> uh, Jean hadn't yet mentioned them to him. So John and Tanya and Greg uh, put on breathing masks to protect them from the rat and mouse poop that had accumulated in the shed, and they proceeded to load up John's van with dozens of boxes of records, which uh, he took back up to Arrowhead, where they have now all been digitized. In fact, the Arrowhead team did a lot more than just digitize those records. They have now completed a detailed inventory on a very large spreadsheet which uh, documents the title, date, and other basic information for more than 5,000 documents. The documents themselves have now been carefully stored in airtight boxes and uh, returned to Jean, uh, where she's hoping to transport them to, uh, well, that's the problem that has to be solved yet. Jean uh, told me that the family would like to see these records ultimately stored in the Stanford University Archive. But to date, they haven't been able to make direct contact with anyone associated with that institution uh, who can help to move this project forward. So if you happen to know someone connected with the Stanford Archive and can help, well, please let me know so that I can uh, put them in direct contact with Gene, who is the current owner of this material. But what of the digitized records, you ask? Well, how can you see them for yourself? Unfortunately, there's still some work to be done before they can be placed online. Uh, specifically, there needs to be an abstract created for uh, most of the documents. And while this will be a largely an effort done by volunteers, what is still lacking are funds to pay for uh, two full-time Arrowwood staffers who will supervise this work and write the software required to help you sort through all this material. Fortunately, uh, enough funds were raised through the donations to Arrowwood earlier to get the digitizing and preservation of the records completed. But another $5,000 is required to finish the abstract work and to place the documents online. So if you're in a position to help, uh, on the program notes for this podcast, you'll find a link to Arrowwood's Support the Stoleroff Collection page, where you can make a tax-deductible targeted donation that will uh, go directly to this project. Or you can just go directly to Arrowwood, E-R-O-W-I-D, arrowwood.org, and uh, search for the Stoleroff Collection. It's uh, really easy to find. Well, I guess that it's time to close this little tribute to my dear friend, Myron Stoloroff. But while he may no longer be with us in body, he's always going to be with us in spirit. And every time you think of him or listen to one of his talks or read one of his books or papers or trip reports, you are keeping the flame of his spirit alive. And I think that's also true of all the other people we've uh, known who have departed this earthly plane. My own father died in 1975, yet there isn't a day that goes by without me thinking about him, and in doing so, I feel like I'm keeping his spirit alive and uh, 
keep him as a companion with me on this interesting journey that we're all on, this journey called life. So, sail on, dear Myron, sail on to those celestial realms that you first began exploring here on Earth with your psychedelic adventures. May your everlasting experiences be filled with love and joy, as your avatar on Earth always was. What a bold venture you had here on Earth, Myron. You will remain an inspiration for us all in our years ahead. And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends.